Good morning. If anyone feels bad or silly about getting a little choked up or emotional in church, I struggle with it. Well, maybe I shouldn't say struggle. I have that feeling lots, and then I was reminded we're in good company. The uh, American founding father, Benjamin Franklin, said of George Whitfield's preaching that it would bring a crowd to tears the way he pronounced Mesopotamia. <laughs> so, I wish we had recordings of some of those old guys because the eloquence and the wordsmithiness that is described of them, it would be wonderful to hear recordings, but maybe we'll hear Whitfield preach in the new creation. I also want to draw your attention to one thing in the bulletin before I forget. Um, I will say I have been tremendously encouraged when I... Here we go. When I have talked to people ahead of a Sunday service and they said they've been reading ahead to prepare themselves for the following Sunday. And that is a great encouragement and that is a wonderful thing. And so what I have started to do, uh, starting this week, I let Kaylin know next week's text. And so it's in the bulletin. And so I would encourage everyone... Uh, as you do part of your Bible reading this week, read next week's text and start marinating in it. Start thinking about it. Start uh, seeing connections yourself in the Bible as you prepare to be ministered to as we preach through the Gospel of Matthew. And with that, we are starting chapter 16 this morning. We're going to look at the first four verses. So turn to Matthew 16, 16, 1 through 4. And once you've got it, then please stand as we read God's Word. And these are the infallible, inspired words of a holy God. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed, and you can be seated. And may God bless the reading of his word. So as we've worked through the Gospel of Matthew, it's been my goal uh, to do two things as we preach through this. Uh, one is uh, kind of what's called the historical grammatical approach, where you get into the words, you, you parse out the meaning, you set the table kind of, of, of what's happening in the context. But part of that, which I think is something that's frequently uh, missing, from my standpoint at least, is what's called redemptive historical preaching. So looking at the big story. How do the small parts uh, contribute to the whole? But then we also need to understand that once we understand the whole, how that makes more sense of the individual parts. And so it has been my earnest desire to show that the miracles and the teaching that Jesus is giving is in no way random or separated from the overall story arc of Scripture. The miracles and the teaching that Jesus offers fit perfectly with the way the story is going. Jesus comes as the Messiah that was promised to Israel. And we've seen that the way the story is setting up in the New Testament here, uh, it's about to close the same way that the Old Testament closed. The Old Testament closes with Israel, the northern tribe. Remember that the nation of Israel has a civil war and it gets uh, separated into the northern Israel and the southern Judah. 
And the northern tribe gets hauled off first by the Assyrians. And then about 130 years later, Judah, the southern tribe, gets hauled off and exiled by the Babylonians. And then this whole region goes through a series of uh, empires that control this region, starting with the Medo-Persians at the end of the book of Daniel, uh, and then Greece, and then finally Rome. And so this whole area, and the Jewish nation, which isn't a nation with borders anymore, but it's a people, they go through incredible turmoil uh, in this time. There's like a political football. And when things are politically volatile, no one will be able to think of this in our time, but when things are politically volatile, do you notice how people start to organize themselves in tribes? Hypothetical, it wouldn't happen in our time, but... This is what people do. And so one of the tribes that the Jews organized themselves into in this time between the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus were the Zealots. These were the political revolutionaries that wanted to incite a war against Rome and take the Holy Land back uh, that way. Then you had the Sadducees. These were the equivalent, you know, you've got the culture warriors, kind of the top-down, heavy-handed revolutionaries. But then the, the Sadducees took the exact opposite approach. These people were very, uh, let's say, flexible in their understanding of Scripture. They didn't want any trouble from the state. They could interpret the Bible however Caesar told them to interpret it, uh, and they found peace through compromise. They were the equivalent of the liberals of their day. And then you had another group that wasn't happy with either approach, and so they just said, uh, kind of a, almost an Anabaptist approach, we're just going to withdraw from society and just be super spiritual. We're not going to worry about the physical world at all. We're just going to withdraw and form our own little spiritual tribe. And these people were called the Essenes. And lastly, the group that came closest, at least for a season, to actual faithfulness was a back-to-the-Bible movement called the Pharisees. These people wanted to take the Bible seriously. They were not interested in revolt. They were not interested in compromise, and they also were not interested in withdrawal. So these people started well. This started as a legitimate back-to-the-Bible kind of movement that turned ingrown and legalistic and dead and tradition-bound and hypocritical. So by the time Jesus comes here, the Pharisees are clearly no longer the good guys. All four of these tribes, so to speak, or, or sects, they all lost the storyline along the way, each in their own unique way, but everybody lost the plot somewhere before the advent of Christ. And so when Christ comes to Israel, everybody misses it. Everybody misses it. And we start seeing that right from the beginning. Remember, if we go back to the beginning of this series, who comes, who understands the prophecies about the coming Messiah and who comes to visit him? Mystic pagans from the East. They understood the book of Daniel in a way that the Jews completely missed. Everybody missed it. Pagans understood prophecy better than these people did, and accordingly they came when the signs were right in the sky. And this isn't a one-off. That pattern is set up all the way through Christ's ministry of outsiders seemingly catching on and insiders completely missing the plot altogether. Christ's own people that he came to will continually misunderstand and reject him. And as this Jewish and Israelite rejection of Christ gets more and more pronounced as we go through the gospel, Christ is becoming more openly hostile to the Jewish leaders. And he's demonstrating more and more clearly that he is moving on to the Gentile people. And this started most recently with the Canaanite woman who was happy to get crumbs off the, off the children's table like a dog. 
And then Jesus goes to another Gentile region as he performs the second mass feeding miracle. We looked at that, right? The, why is the feeding of the 4,000 right on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000? Is this just, you know, did Jesus get just good at that particular trick and he wanted to try it again to perfect his skills? Not at all. It's a teaching miracle, teaching about Gentile inclusion. That this Canaanite woman isn't just a dog to get scraps, but this mixed crowd, the feeding of the 4,000 of a Jewish and Gentile, largely Gentile, group gets invited to the table. There's full Gentile inclusion at Christ's table, is what he's teaching them. So it's not really a repeat story. Something different is being communicated. The Gentiles are full equals at the children's table. And this Canaanite woman had showed her humility in that the, child, that the children's table is not about ethnicity, but about repentance. And her own personal confession and admission to being a lowly dog, deserving of nothing, but thankful for everything, means that she's in while the ethnic children are out. And it's as though the Jewish people saw themselves as a finished product rather than the seed stock from which God was going to start rebuilding his new humanity. And don't we all do that? Right? We see ourselves as a finished product rather than a seed stock that God is starting to work with. That was the mistake they made. They made the mistake of thinking that humanity, the, the dividing line of humanity was kind of divided horizontally, right? With us good Jewish people over here and all these dirty outsider people over here. And what Christ is showing, that's not a meaningful dividing line at all. The meaningful dividing line runs horizontally. <laughs> across every tongue, tribe, and nation. The difference is who's in Adam and who's in Christ. That's the dividing line that matters. Not ethnicity, but are you in Christ? Do you enjoy union with Christ? Have you been adopted into the family of God regardless of whether you're Brazilian, Ukrainian, Mesopotamian, or Jewish? That's the dividing line that matters. And in fact, it's the only dividing line that matters. It's not about blood, it's about faithfulness. Okay? It's not about genetics, it's about covenants. And these people should have been knowing their scriptures well enough to know all these stories that run counter to what we would assume. They should know that it's about Seth and not Abel. It's about Isaac and not Ishmael. It's about Judah and not Reuben. Maybe they should remember that Matthew's family tree starts with outsiders like Rahab and Ruth. So these people maybe knew these stories, but they had no idea what they meant. And getting the gospel to the nations so that Christ can establish his kingdom among every tongue, tribe, and nation was not plan B after plan A failed. We discussed that a little bit in Sunday school this morning about the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. Before there was a you on earth, your name, if you are in Christ, was in the Lamb's book of life before the fall even happened. This is the outworking of God's inscrutable decree that cannot in any way be altered. So clearly there are some believing Jews in Jesus' time who understand what's happening, but the people as a whole are blind. And so we have a very interesting situation setting up here in Matthew 16. And at first glance, this looks like another repeat, right? We just did the, the feeding of the 4,000 right after the feeding of the 5,000. Is this a repeat? And some of you are thinking, didn't we do the sign of Jonah on October in Matthew 12? And yes, we did do the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12. Jesus is repeating it. And I want to suggest again that by repeating it, he's both deepening the meaning of this sign as well as making a different kind of application of it. It's not a strict repeat. 
I sometimes get criticized for repeating myself, and I'll just say I learned from a good teacher. Jesus tells them that they are an evil and adulterous generation, and he is going to give them no further signs. But he does point to a future sign. The sign of Jonah is yet coming. And back, as we saw last time, and you can go back and listen to it if you like, what is this sign? Like Jonah, Christ is going to be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And he is going to take a curse upon himself. It actually showed up in some song lyrics this morning. Just like Jonah's head is wrapped in seaweed, Christ receives a crown of thorns, which is a very real-life, very tangible way of Christ taking the curse upon his own head. Right? Remember, our first parents were cursed with weeds and thistles in creation, that their bread will come hard out of the soil because of weeds, and Christ takes that curse very literally on his head. And typologically, we see Jonah taking that curse on his head as his head is wrapped in seaweed. Like Jonah, Christ is going to get the message of repentance out to hated outsiders. And the pride, the arrogance, and the indifference of God's people will be met with a heartfelt cutting to the heart and repentance of outsiders. In Matthew 12, Jesus had condemned the Pharisees harshly and says that the men of Nineveh will stand at the final judgment to condemn them. And in that passage, he even says, even the queen of Sheba, who's a pagan queen, will come to, who did come to sit at the feet of Solomon to glean his wisdom, is going to be pointing her finger at these Jewish unbelievers at the final judgment. Outsiders will judge you for your hardness. And the Bible is clear. Ethnicity, national boundaries, and human decisionism all mean nothing in God's saving purposes. He is no respecter of persons. John 1 verse 11 says that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Okay? That's the dividing line. Okay? It's not about a decision you made. It's not about which family you were born into. It's not about your ethnicity. It's about becoming children of God. And this is not an act of the will. This is an act of God to save sinners from every people. So in terms of the unfolding further... I'm happy to say that the first four verses here in Matthew 16 echo Matthew 12, but they are not an exact repeat. Verse 1 shows us the difference. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Right here. This is the difference between chapter 12 and chapter 16. The delegation of Pharisees who come to confront Jesus is the same, but their partners are different. Back there, if you thumb, I hear Bible pages turning, which is a wonderful sound. If you go back to Matthew 12, you'll see that it was the scribes and the Pharisees who came to Jesus. And these people had a similar outlook. These are like the, the, the lawyers of Scripture together with the Pharisees coming to confront Jesus. They had a similar outlook. Okay? But now, it says that the Sadducees came with the Pharisees. And we hear those words in our English, and, and we don't live in that world. So I think the significance of this easily gets lost. Remember, the Sadducees were the theological liberals. Okay? And they come rolling in with the fundamentalists. 
Just think about that. Liberals and fundamentalists in league with one another. Something's going on here. Something fishy is happening. There's an old Islamic proverb that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Okay? And there is some truth to that. For Pharisees and Sadducees to not be physically fighting each other means that they have found a common enemy that they hate even more than they hate each other. And these people really hate each other. They detest one another. But they can set that aside for a minute because you know who they hate more? Jesus Christ. He is the most hated enemy in the room. Let's gang up on him. We'll set our differences aside temporarily. The Pharisees hate Christ because of envy. They think these are back to the Bible people and Christ is showing them repeatedly, you guys don't get it and he's showing a better way. He's showing what scripture actually means. They got so short-sighted in their wooden interpretation of scripture that they missed the story. They missed the plot. They missed the redemptive historical things that were happening. And they're embarrassed that they're being shown up. And so they hate him out of envy. They're jealous of Christ and they're angry that he is shaming them. He's showing them that they're not so competent in the scriptures as they thought they were. And the Sadducees hate him because he's, this guy's talking like scripture actually matters. Right? And we're just trying to keep the peace. We're just trying to be obedient people here for Caesar. And, and Jesus is talking as though the scriptures matter. Okay? They're being shamed that way, as though the scriptures actually have a fixed meaning. And so the fact that Christ thunders authoritatively about anything at all shows that there is a correct interpretation to the Bible. And if there's a correct meaning, that means that all other options are false. Their liberalism is being exposed by Christ. That's why they hate him. Okay? Because it's not all just glitter and love and peace and flower children. Okay? Jesus is condemning both parties. And so the conflict with the Pharisees is about who is right and who is wrong. And the conflict with the Sadducees is about whether right and wrong even exist at all. Okay? These are the progressives of the time. Nothing matters as long as we have the favor of the Caesar. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees truly have nothing in common whatsoever other than shared ethnicity. Okay? I tried to think of a contemporary example, and maybe you can play this mind game with me. Think of a, you know, an independent, fundamentalist, Baptist church. You don't pronounce the P or the T in the South. It's a Baptist church from Tishomingo, Mississippi. Okay? You got the King James-only Bible! You got the deacon with his tie about this long, right, and the, the God Bless America hat. That guy comes strolling in with the pink-haired student from Berkeley. And we're both Americans. We've got that in common, right? We're, we're together. What kind of a situation would be set up for those people to be in league with each other? <laughs> Clearly, it can be nothing other than hatred for a common enemy because these people really have nothing in common whatsoever. Their hearts are filled with envy and hate. And envy and anger and hatred can create very strong bonds for very short and unstable periods of time. Once the common enemy has been taken care of, these types of truces always end up in backstabbing and chaos. And I saw this sometimes. Maybe you've got similar experiences. Before we started farming, I worked as a nutritionist for a major feed company here. And I would sometimes travel to farms that didn't buy from us as part of a sales task. And sometimes if I'd pull onto a yard 
And someone was very quick and very ready to come to Landmark Feeds. Uh, and then the, the first question was, yeah, well, you know, uh, my last feed company is a real idiot. He killed a bunch of my cows. I think it's copper toxicity. Should I sue them? Hmm. <laughs> Do you want that guy? No, you don't. Because it's just a matter of time before I'm the next idiot who does something wrong on his farm. Okay? We can make applications for churches as well. I don't feel that this has been really a problem for us at Trinity. But I know it can be. People who leave churches poorly. Okay? There is a time and a place to leave a church for unfaithfulness. Absolutely. But you don't have to leave poorly. And I'll tell you the same thing is true. If your last four pastors were all a bunch of clueless idiots... I'm number five, sorry to tell you, okay? Because the problem isn't with your last church, it's not with the last pastor, it's not with the last four pastors. There's a common denominator to some of these problems, okay? And again, I'm not saying it's never time to leave a church. Absolutely, it sometimes is. But even that can be done well in a way that doesn't involve backstabbing and chaos and fake truces. The only way that unity can truly bond a covenant people together is an agreement on a positive shared vision. For example, in our church at Trinity, what does it say on your bulletin? That we exist to herald the glory of God over all creation. That's a positive vision. We have a mandate. We have a clear theological vision. We have a, a, an old, old reformed confession that positively paints a, a picture. There's a vision. And there's, of course, always room for difference over more minor things, and there should be grace in all differences. But we need to define ourselves positively and not negatively. Okay? There's no future in a church whose definition is, well, we're not like the other guys. Okay? Because, again, have you ever noticed that all the churches who do church differently are exactly the same? Okay? There's no more group of cookie-cutter churches than churches that do things differently. They're all the same because that's not a, it's not a positive vision. That's just defining yourself negatively, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees have come to do. And so again, the detail may be lost due to familiarity with our English Bibles or because we don't live in that world, but in coming to confront Jesus together, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are demonstrating a shared hatred of Christ. Nothing other than envy, evil, and hatred would bring these two groups together. And again, a, a contemporary example that isn't just a hypothetical but isn't it the most bizarre thing that on the progressive left in our society, you have this alliance between Islam and LGBTQ? Okay? There is absolutely nothing in common with those worldviews other than they hate the West. Okay? They hate everything that our great-grandparents have built here, like free market economics, like the rule of law. Okay? Like the presumption of innocence. They agree enough to say, we hate North America. We hate everything about North America. Okay? But if they would be successful in eliminating the Christian order that built this society, do you think they'd get along for three seconds after that? Their swords would turn on each other immediately. Because the only thing holding them together is hatred. That's it. There's no shared positive vision about how things ought to be. There's just a shared enemy. We need to kill any last remnants of Christianity in the West. So a shared hatred is not a positive vision. It has no future whatsoever. And the only thing holding these groups here, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, is anger, jealousy, hatred, and blindness. 
And the fact that they are in league together is another step in this story development. This plot is moving ahead. These enemy tribes within Israel are forming leagues to oppose Christ. And this is going to become more and more the focus of Jesus' parables, more and more about the prophecies that he is going to tell, including about a catastrophic judgment coming on Jerusalem, including the very temple that these people supposedly share. So the table is being set. It's moving on. Verse 2 and 3, it says, He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy weather, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Who's conversant enough in Low German to know what Ovendraut Moriagot means? Okay? <laughs> Ovendraut Moriagot means the evening is red, tomorrow it's going to be good. It's another way of saying this. In English, you've maybe heard, red in the morning, sailors take warning. Red at night, sailors delight. Okay? The red sky means something different in the morning than it does in the evening. In haying time, you know, we'd shut the baler down in the evening, and if it was a red sunset, then Grandpa would always say, over the road, where you go. It's a red evening, we're going to be bailing again tomorrow morning before long because good weather is on the way. That's how the skies work. And so these people do know how to understand patterns, at least when it comes to the weather. They understand meteorological patterns. But notice carefully that the same signal, the same thing, can mean something differently depending on when it's occurring. Okay? What's in common is redness, but when it's happening means something very different. <laughs> if it's in the evening, it's good. If it's in the morning, something's coming. And Jesus is instructing them on the importance of being able to tell the time. You guys need to understand where we are at in the story. They've asked for a sign from him, which is audacious in itself, because think of everything he's already done apart from the early miracles in the Gospel of Matthew. Just recently, like very recently, he's healed the man with the withered hand, he's healed the sick, and then fed a, a crowd of 5,000 men, so probably 20 plus thousand, once you count women and children, he walked out on the water to Peter and then got Peter to walk on the water. He healed more sick at Gennesaret. He cast a demon out of the Canaanite woman's daughter. And then he comes back and he heals more lame, more blind, more crippled, more mute. And then he feeds a crowd of 4,000 plus women and children. These people don't need another sign. There is plenty of signs that have been given. The problem is not a lack of evidence. It is a deep-seated hatred the Son of God. And Jesus is saying, a different time requires a different sign. And you know what, guys? It's over. That door has closed for you. I'm done. You get it. You've, you've seen it all. It's plain as day. You are getting nothing more because you're refusing to see what I put in front of you. And we're moving on in the story here. So that door is closing on you guys. I'm sorry. You are not getting another sign. The presence of Christ for these people, at first, should have been a blessing. He came to his own people, to the lost tribes, to the lost sheep of Israel, and they are rejecting him. So what should be a blessing for them is quickly becoming a curse. And I want to make application for believers today. 
Every man, woman, and child who has ever lived knows the God of the Scriptures. Romans is clear on that. You don't have to have been brought up in a Christian worldview to know that the God of the Bible exists. Okay? That's written on your heart. Everyone's made in the image of God. Okay? So everyone who has ever existed is a theist. There is no such thing as atheism. Everybody knows that the God of the Bible is there. Some suppress it. But everybody knows. Even those who don't have the light of Scripture do have the light of nature, Romans 1 says. They know enough to know that God is creator and his law is imaged on our hearts. It's stamped on our hearts, whether we've been taught it or not. So the problem, even today, is not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of evidence. It's a lack of submission. It's a hardness of heart. Okay? One more evidence, one more argument, one more sign will not change because these people already know they're in rebellion against God. But these men in front of Jesus are refusing to read the story correctly. So now they pretend disingenuously like they're going to be convinced if Jesus will do just one more sign. And Jesus is not having it. He's not interested. They won't be. Christ knows that, so he refuses. Why throw pearls to swine? In chapter 12, where Christ last spoke about the sign of Jonah, the Pharisees saw Jesus cast out demons. And remember, they had just seen him cast out demons. And what, what do they say? He did that by the power of Satan. And Jesus connects that accusation with the unpardonable sin. You are looking in the eyes of the Son of Man. You are looking at God and seeing the whites of his eyes, and you say, that's Satan. And Jesus is saying, be very, very careful. Because this is a blasphemy for which there is no forgiveness. Not now, not ever. You guys are in deep danger of committing a blasphemy that will never be forgiven. It's heating up, and Jesus is treating this very, very seriously. Christ connects that level of hardness, that level of accusation of calling good evil and evil good with the unpardonable sin. And now they're back again, asking the same question again with the same stubborn hearts, and this time they brought their enemies with them to do it. They learned nothing. They're not scared of God whatsoever. These guys don't know the time. They don't know how to read a story. They were so consumed in reading sentences in Moses that they forgot completely. They completely missed what Moses was teaching. They missed the forest for the trees, right? You know, some people that just are so caught up on details that they missed the story. That's what happened to these guys. And Jesus had said that already. You know, John came preaching repentance and you people refused to repent. The Son of Man comes and you call him a glutton and a drunkard. Okay, John's playing a funeral song and you guys don't mourn. I come with a wedding feast and you refuse to dance. What is wrong with you people? You never ever know what time it is. What's wrong? How can I get through to you? And Christ is telling the top most respected scholars and teachers of the land from both the fundamentalist side and from the liberal schools, you know what guys, as theologians, you make pretty good weathermen. Okay? You can tell the weather. You have no idea about what you're handling in the scriptures. You have no idea what Moses was teaching. You don't have a clue. And you refuse to have a clue. And it's now the time in the story for Christ to play the role of prophet and walk away. 
He's willing to let the hardness persist to its own death and destruction. And that's the closing verse here. He leaves and departs. Just like the prophets eventually got to in the Old Testament. Once these people refuse to listen, you walk away. They have decided that they want to go to war with God. They have decided to walk into the lake of fire. They have decided they want judgment rather than repentance. And Christ says, okay, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And Christ connects this generation, the adultery and the betrayal of Jerusalem, to the sign of Jonah. And he says that in verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. And Christ invokes language here that is common among the prophets. We read about it in Isaiah 29, where it says, And the Lord said, Because this people draws near to me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. These people are using themselves as a standard. They think they're right, and they're judging God according to their standard. And that's exactly what's wrong. This kind of a prophetic showdown has happened often in the Old Testament, and now it's happening again. Don read from Deuteronomy 32 that says the same thing. His own people didn't receive him. He's going to go to a nation of fools to embarrass you. Okay? I'm going to go to the Gentiles, and they're going to start coming in before you Jewish people do. And Christ refers them to the sign of Jonah. And again, if you want to listen more on the typology of that, you can go back in the archives for October the 15th, that sermon. So I won't do a full deep dive on that again. But we do know Jonah is a type of Christ. He goes down into Sheol or into Hades. And then there's this resurrection story where the grave spits Jonah back out just like it spits Christ out. And he goes to the hated outsiders. And this is what Christ has been doing. And with time, this is what the apostles are going to start doing in Acts as well after Stephen gets martyred. Day after day and year after year and even century after century, God has held out his hand to a disobedient people and they refuse to come. He sends messenger after messenger who get martyred and now he's sending his son, which is just the last one of these messengers that these people are going to kill. Stephen, again, will echo this in his martyrdom when he preaches probably the most condemning sermon in all of Scripture. When Stephen just walks through the whole Old Testament in one sermon and says, you people killed these prophets, and now you killed the son himself. And the Jews are angry at him, and they kill him. And that's the last moment. That's when the apostles all abandon Jerusalem. Interestingly, 490 years after Cyrus's decree to rebuild Jerusalem, 457. The significance of prophecy there as well. 490 Daniel's 70 weeks, you can do a deep dive on that, but it's 490 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem that they leave. Also prophetic, also not plan B. 
Moses has called it from the start. He says, I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And just like Hosea bringing Gomer back from the horror auction, God, again, will show mercy. But for now, these people must be ground to powder. And you see God's future purposes yet in what Don read this morning in Romans 11. But now is the time they need to be ground to powder. They need to be shamed. They need to go through the whore auction to be bought back just like Gomer did. Because why? Well, because they are a whore. They are an adulterous generation. They refuse to bend the knee to King Jesus. And so Jesus connects their idolatry with adultery. Okay? And when they're bought back, it will be clear that it is not on their merit, but on the blood work of Jesus Christ. But for now, as long as they're presuming on their nationhood or their ethnicity, as these Pharisees and Sadducees do, they are going to remain under the white-hot anger of God. Once they humble themselves like the Canaanite woman who's happy for crumbs and see that they are in only because of the kindness and mercy of God, they will once again be invited back to the table of God's fellowship, together as equals with these Gentile believers that God is bringing in. And this is the sign of Jonah. The dividing line is not ethnicity, but repentance and faith. Even Ninevites can be saved in Jonah's gospel. And this is the end of the matter. Jesus is happy to leave it there. You have enough knowledge. You know what you ought to do. If you're going to miss this sign too, there's nothing more I can do for you. I will give you the sign of Jonah, and I'm out of here. And so what do we do with this today as Christians? We're not living 2,000 years ago. We're living today. And as far as I know, ethnically, none of us are Jewish people. But we still can make application. And I want to suggest one of the deep ironies about our own blind spots is that you can't see them. None of us can see the back of our head, which is one of the reasons God puts us in community with other believers to hold each other up, to pray for each other, to help hold each other accountable. I may not be able to see the back of my head, but Ray can, right? Hugh can. You guys can show me my blind spots. And so we should not assume that it's impossible for us to commit the same kinds of sins that the Jewish people did. We too can presume on a Christian heritage. We too can presume on a godly upbringing that we have not personalized and taken into our own lives. We are very capable of committing the same sins that these Jews did. But Romans 11 shows us that the same principle remains. If some branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share the nourishing root of the olive tree. See, this olive tree is Christ. And it doesn't matter whether you're an early branch or a late branch. We're grafted into Christ. That's the common, <laughs> that's the common root here. So Paul says, if you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in, and that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. This is a warning to the church. This is a warning to Christians. Look what I just did to Israel. The same thing can happen to you guys. If you neglect the faith, if you start to presume, okay, if you become hard-hearted, I will treat you the same way as I treated the Jews and show you this isn't about your background. I'll snap you off that tree just as much as I did the Jews. 
and I'll graft someone with a soft, repentant heart back in. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural, graft, natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Okay? So they'll come back, but it'll be through the gospel and not by ethnicity. So even in the new covenant, those of us who have been grafted in may start to feel proud of ourselves and start looking down on other people as the Jews did. And we need to remember every day that we are invited to God's table by grace alone. You're not in because you come from better blood. You're not in because you're mentally more gifted and you can understand the Bible in a way that these simpletons can't, and so you're in because of your great wise intelligence. That's not why you're in. You're not in because you're more pious and you're just naturally a very holy, sinless person. That's not it. You're not in because you made better decisions. You're in because God grafted you into Christ. And there is no salvation apart from Christ, regardless of your ethnicity. So we are all like the Canaanite woman. We're all beggars in need of crumbs. And yet God is pleased to adopt us into his family and set us up at the king's table. And if we are so proud and so hard as to complain about some of the other people that Jesus has invited to his table, we're guilty of the same sin here. There's no room for looking down on people. We too are recipients of grace. And I think we see the same errors in our own time that happened at the time of Jesus. It's maybe less common than 50 years ago, but there persists, even to this day, an angry kind of grumpy fundamentalism that sees all the parts of the story, but they completely miss the story, right? You're so caught up remembering the 12 disciples. You're so caught up memorizing the order of the books of the Bible that you have no idea what the Bible's about. It's maybe not common, but it does exist. I think in our own time, the second error is much more prevalent. It's so pliable, it's so accepting of everything, it's so tolerant of every antichrist ideology that there's no room for Christ himself. And so the gospel answers this marvelously. Okay? If, we, if we see the story, if we see that we're all like the Canaanite woman, okay? if we see that this is about Christ and not about ourselves, if we see and understand what the story of Jonah is meant to convey about outsiders coming in and about the mission of the Son of Man, we will have a proper biblical understanding, both of sin and of redemption. And touching on that, talking about what we might refer to in contemporary language as reformational-style theology, sometimes called the doctrines of grace. I'll close with Charles Hodge and some great wisdom. He's a Princeton theologian in the 1800s. The doctrines of grace humble man without degrading him and exalt him without inflating him. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus this morning and nothing else? Let's pray. Father God, you have filled this creation with your glory and it echoes from every corner. Lord, just because we close our eyes does not mean there is not evidence of your glory absolutely everywhere. 
Lord, open our eyes so that we too would see that. Help us to see you and your glory in every page of Scripture. Lord, help us to not just understand sentences, but teach us how to read a story. Teach us how to read the story that we are in. Lord, convict us that we would never be guilty of the same kind of hardness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that we would not presume on anything in us, but that we would come empty-handed with grateful hearts to you, knowing that just as Jonah preached to outsiders, so you too bring your gospel to outsiders. Just as he had to suffer three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, Lord, you did that for us. You wore a crown of weeds so that you could place a crown of glory on our heads. Lord, may we never forget that. Send your Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, I pray that you would make application of this in each of our lives as we interact with people who know you and, and people who don't know you. I pray that you would fill us with the humility and a confidence both that can only come from being grafted in to your family and enjoying table fellowship with you and all those you have called through all history from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Lord, I pray that we would be a gracious and hospitable people and a thankful people. Amen. Please stand.
Every detail of Christ's activity, miracles, and teaching are interwoven so as to tell one big story. The story of the Old Covenant terminates into Christ. And this is the story that the Pharisees and Sadducees are unable to see, no matter how close it gets to them. The Pharisees were so consumed with reading sentences that they missed the plot. The Sadducees were so consumed with neglecting sentences that they missed the plot. But our God is a storytelling God, and so our charge as his people is to learn how stories work. God in Christ is rebuilding humanity. Christ is the new faithful Adam and the new faithful Israel. And the only way to enjoy fellowship with God is through union with Christ. All those who are united to Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are rightful sons and daughters of God, invited to sit at his table and to be fed by him forever. So get in the word and stay in the word. Learn how to read the story. Learn how to read the times. Christ is enough. He has spoken his final word. As we sit and are fed at his father's table, we ought to remember that we got there the same way as everyone else. As we grow in this understanding, we will also grow in grace, patience, humility, and understanding with our brothers and sisters who are seated beside us. And then receive the benediction from Galatians 3:23 through 28. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to promise. And go in peace.